0: We pray, Lord, that these gifts that we have given this morning, that they would reveal themselves, that they would reveal, be a part of the revelation to who you are as they go out and minister in various ways in this community and across the globe. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen and amen. Well, sisters and brothers, uh, it is good to be here this morning with you. We've been out and about much of the ministry staff all week. We were up at, uh, well, starting in Wednesday, uh, up at Calvin College at a worship conference. Uh, There were nine of us that were there. It was great. Uh, We got back yesterday afternoon, and it's always fun to come back and be able to see uh, uh, that the church is alive and well, A, that it's still there. That's always encouraging. And B, as we got back yesterday afternoon, um, there were lots of young uh, uh, high school girls that are here um, and are as a part of the awakening as Scott prayed for, uh, and so it was great just to be able to be reminded of the impact uh, that we are able to have here at ZPC, and so thank you to all of you who, uh, who work and minister and lead, and if you haven't been around, uh, you may see um, um, you know people who look very young. You know, it's, it, it really is amazing. Just how young high schoolers look now. Um, and, uh, but Megan is on the team, which is great. This has kind of been a, a, a trial run for her. You know, when you have four little girls, uh, this is her opportunity to see, you know, do we have what it takes to parent uh, teenage girls? And, um, and I think we are in trouble, but I think it'll be great. Um, uh, it'll, be, it'll be a wonderful thing. We love our children, and every era... Every stage has its own joys and challenges, right? But there are joys that continue, right? Good, all right. Mostly we're just here for me today, so I appreciate that confirmation. Uh, Well, it is a blessing for us to be able to continue in our look at the Gospel of John. This is, I think, the fourth week, probably, something like that, that we are uh, are wrestling with John. We'll do it over the next several months. And uh, we remember, as we said last week, that it's always important, especially at the beginning, to pay attention. Uh, What's a foundation that the storyteller is trying to give us um, about, about who the main character is? Of course, the main character in the gospel is Jesus. And so what is John trying to tell us about Jesus in these particular stories that we see early on in his gospel? And so this morning, we get to hear from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. So I invite you to hear these words. John writes, "The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. And he also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables." He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us Pray, God, we do pray that you would be with us on this beautiful February day. When the sun is out, might we be reminded of your son, Jesus the Christ. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So, in just one week... We have gone from Jesus turning 150 gallons of water into 150 gallons of the best wine at a wedding feast and everyone right loving this Jesus to all of a sudden in the very next story, Jesus going in, turning over tables, whipping things and making everyone, it seems, Angry. It's enough to give you whiplash if you're not paying attention or if you're paying too much attention. It almost seems like these must be two completely different people. The Jesus we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 2 versus the Jesus we see this week at the end of chapter 2. What is John trying to tell us? About Jesus, One of the interesting things about these two passages is that there actually is a connection and the connective word is and. In other words, in between these two stories is simply the word and, which would make us think that there's not as big of a difference as we might at first have imagined. So let's go back quickly and just think through this particular story. It starts in Jerusalem and what's happening in Jerusalem at this time is... Passover, which is a high holiday. It would have been huge. Jerusalem at that time probably had about 80,000 people. And more than likely, around 300,000 more people came into the city for this high holiday. Which means you had some who were really excited. There was great joy and celebration. There was chaos. But it was, you know, this wonderful kind of a holiday. But you also had the Roman authorities who would have been on edge. You know, Roman authorities were always waiting for some rabble-rouser to come and try to rebel against their empire. And so there is a fair amount of both excitement and tension during High high holiday in the city of Jerusalem. So there they are. Jesus walks into the temple area, and what he sees are animals, right? He sees uh, cattle. He sees sheep. He, see, he, see, he, see, he, see, he sees doves. And he sees money changers. And they're in the, the Gentile part of the temple. This is the section where the Gentiles were allowed to come and worship. And he's obviously not pleased with what he sees. But why why are those things there in the first place? Well, they're there, of course, as you know, probably. To, to, to go at Passover, you needed to sacrifice something. And I don't know if you know this or not, but if you want to travel 20 or 30 miles, it's a lot harder to do it with a dove on a leash. And so I said, okay, you don't need to do that. You can come to the temple, and, and you can buy your dove here. You can buy your sheep here. You can buy your cow here, and that's much easier. And they had money changers there because you couldn't really buy those things uh, with Roman money. It wasn't. It wasn't kosher, if you will. And so you would have to go and and take your Roman money and exchange it for kind of sacred money, if you will. And so that's exactly what's going on in this scene. And if you read more about this, lots of people have lots of theories as to whether or not those things were okay according to the Old Testament or whether they weren't okay. And some people say, well, you know, the Gentiles, it was difficult for them to worship when they're standing next to a, a cow or something. And So there's lots of different ideas. We'll probably not really know for sure if all of those things were, quote, legal or not. What we do know is that Jesus didn't like them. And so he shows up, and he begins to whip. He makes a, a whip out of things, more than likely. Uh, I mean, this is kinda, it's kind of like TSA, you know, back in the day. They would not have allowed you just to walk up to the temple with a whip. Uh, and so he—that's why he kind of just finds things to turn into a whip, and he begins to overturn everything. Now, amongst all the hustle and bustle of that, it would be easy to overlook just this one thing I want you to see, which is that, Jesus says, you have turned my father's house into a marketplace. It's the first place in the Gospel of John where Jesus calls God his father. It's it's kind of interesting, actually, that none of the religious leaders will say anything about that in particular at this point. They're much too concerned with all the ruckus that Jesus seems to be making. But there's this intimacy. For the first time, we catch this glimpse that Jesus understands his God to be father. So let's keep that in mind as we keep going through the story. And so he's, he's obviously upset. He begins to throw everything over, and, but he calls God his father in the midst of all of that. And the disciples later, they remember all of this. And they remember the fact that, that, that what Jesus said actually came from the 69th Psalm. What Jesus said about the fact of kind of turning those things in about zeal for my father's house or zeal for God's house was actually talked about in the 69th Psalm. Why is that significant? Well, if you go to the 69th Psalm, what you begin to see is that not just did the psalmist have a passion for God's house, the psalmist was also being persecuted because of that. And so for John, as he tries to form this particular part of the story, what he's wanting you to know is that again, and we see this throughout John, he is foreshadowing. We saw it last week. He's foreshadowing what is going to come at the end, which is that a part of the reason, if not the main reason, why the religious leaders wanted him killed was because of this very act that he did here in John in chapter 2. That Jesus was going to suffer because of his passion for what was going on inside of the temple. So the religious leaders then, as they see all of this, they're not very happy. Did you notice, it's very interesting, the question that they ask him. They say to him, what gives you the authority to overturn all these tables? Did you notice he didn't ask Uh, Why are you doing this? They didn't ask, um, you know, should you be doing this? They didn't ask any of those things. They, They actually just asked, what gave you the authority to do this? Which has made some wonder whether or not even the religious leaders knew that the way that they were doing things was not quite right. They were more curious about what gave Jesus the authority to do it than with the fact that he was doing it at all or why. He was doing it. And then, of course, Jesus answers in a very quirky way. This is what Jesus oftentimes does. People ask a question, and then he doesn't actually answer it. Uh, You notice, he said, on what authority do you do this? And Jesus says, if this temple were destroyed, I would uh, rebuild it in three days. Oh. That's what we call a non-answer right? It's kind of a non sequitur. It doesn't quite make sense. It's clear he's thinking about something else. They ask a question upon what authority? And he says, well, you know, if you destroy this thing, I'd rebuild it in three days. It doesn't make any sense. And so we, we should kind of, you know, feel bad for the religious leaders that they don't get it because who of us would have gotten what he was saying? And they're like, wait, what are you talking about? This thing, this has been Herod's temple. He's been building it for 46 years. You're building this for 46, and you're going to rebuild this in three days? What are you talking about? You're crazy. Now, John, as we've said a lot of times, he likes to speak on multiple levels. He doesn't always explain it. But this time he realizes that even we are not going to quite get this. And so he says, well, here's what you need to know. Jesus was not talking about the actual temple. He was talking about his body. And once Jesus died and was resurrected, then the disciples looked back and they, they realized that. Oh, okay. Jesus is not talking about the temple. He is talking about his body. Once more, Jesus is always or John is always wanting to make sure that we can continually remember what is going to happen to Jesus the death and the resurrection for us is always attached to how things are going in the midst of Jesus's ministry the last part is really kind of an addendum but I want to bring it up quickly anyways cuz I I love it which is that a lot of people John tells us a lot of people began to believe because of the signs that they would see Jesus doing. But basically what John says is that Jesus didn't put much stock in it. Jesus, he says, Jesus understood people. And he knew, by and large, that they were very mercurial. That they would, you know, one moment they would believe and the next moment they wouldn't. And so, you know, but Jesus knew who he was. So it was okay. I love That line. Here's one of the things that you should know. For some of us, that might make us nervous to think. Well, you know, what does that mean about us and Jesus? Here's what I think: Um, the people who really love you are the ones who know how messed up you are, and they still love you. Wouldn't you say that's true? I mean, uh, you know, you, w- the, the people who, you know, just kind of like us, you know, the people who are like, oh, yeah, you know, you're great. You know, usually we, we, we try to give that sense, you know, to everybody, that perception of, hey, you know what, I'm really an incredible person. You have no idea just how great I am, but I am. Uh, but the people who, who really love you are the ones who know or just like, would you just be quiet? You're not nearly as great as you act like you are, and I know who you genuinely are, and yet they still love you. I love this about Jesus because what John's trying to say, of course, is A, that Jesus is God. But he's also giving us a sense that Jesus is God. Jesus knows you. And yet, as we're going to talk about here in a moment, he still loves you with great passion. And for someone like me and maybe someone like you who knows his or her own weaknesses and inadequacies, it should give you great Joy and peace to know. You ain't hiding anything from Jesus. He knows you. But man, he still loves you. So what do we do with this story? As I said to start us off, it's this really strange switch The beginning of John chapter 2 and the end of John chapter 2. The beginning of John chapter 2, if you're in a fraternity, let's just say, this Jesus is the one you want in your fraternity. Right? I mean, because this is the one, this is the Jesus uh, uh, who knows how to have a really good time. Uh, this is the Jesus who you know that if you're having a party, it's never gonna bomb. It's always gonna be good because even if things start going down, Jesus is gonna find a way to pick it up. Uh, this is the Jesus. I'm remind you, like if you're like, well, should we have Jesus? Should we allow him in our fraternity? Whoa, whoa, whoa. dude, seriously. He because this is how frat boys talk. G- seriously, he can turn water into anything. He's in, right? Now, as we talked about last week, that wasn't the only point of all of this, right? The the, the point of turning all of this water. Some of you fraternity guys are now kind of angry at me that I said that, but that's fine. Jesus um, um, Jesus now, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that a part of what we talked about last week was this abundance and generosity of Jesus. Remember? I mean, this is what Jesus wanted them to see at the wedding feast. And he didn't just want them to see it. He wanted them to experience this grace and generosity and love, right? This is the kind of you're like, oh, yeah, this this is exactly who Jesus is. And then all of a sudden we have this week's Jesus. And this is one If you are in a fraternity. You're like, no, you cannot let this Jesus into the frat because here's the thing. You can have this. great party right and there are people from everywhere who have come to the party and there are live animals because everyone knows that parties are always better with live animals and so you've got you've got that and everything is incredible and all of a sudden Jesus comes in and he ruins the whole thing it's this bummer Jesus no one wants that Jesus And so a part of what's happening here is is that as John describes Jesus, we need to say, wow, I, I thought I had him figured out, but not quite yet. Because then look at this. And one of the beautiful things about this is that, as someone has said, what we begin to understand is that Jesus is not a manageable deity. And as soon as you think you have got Jesus in a box, I'm here to tell you, you're not actually worshiping Jesus. More than likely, you're worshiping the one that you see in the mirror, the one that you've got all figured out, or at least you think you do, the one you can put in a box. Oh, I've got that. No God that you can put in a box is actually God. Because God is always going to surprise us. But there's something else, it seems to me, that we see about Jesus here that is really important for us to see. This is really kind of the one point that I want to make This morning, which is that Jesus, his response, his non-sequitur response, the response that doesn't make sense, is probably the very key to us understanding this whole passage. See, what Jesus is saying in this line is this: He is saying, No, 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 my body is now the temple. And what that means is the temple is not as important as it used to be. You used to think that the temple was the one place where you could find God. And I am here to tell you no. In fact, Jesus is really going on and saying you used to think that what you needed to do was to buy an animal that you could then sacrifice. And I am telling you no. And you used to think that if you're going to worship God that you needed to be segmented. You needed to have Gentiles over here and Jews over here. And I am saying no to that as Well, what Jesus is saying when he comes in and he begins to throw everything up and he begins to whip everything in sight is what he's saying actually is that there is nothing no temple, no animal, no money changer, nothing that is going to separate him. From the people that he loves. That nothing is going to keep him from being in relationship with the people he cares about. That there is no one place where you can go as beautiful as the temple may be and say, oh, that's where God is. That what they will begin to see is that Jesus is actually everywhere. That God is actually everywhere. And what Jesus is doing is he is tearing down down the whole system. And he does it with a dramatic flare, with a ferocity and a determination because he knows just how strong those structures are. And so he says, I am going to with an equal amount of passion for as strong as all these structures are, I am going to do this. I'm going to begin to overturn everything and anything that will get in the way of me and the people I love and see I think that's incredible news this week uh, I was uh, it was earlier this week I don't remember what day but I was with my four little girls and we were in a parking lot And I don't know about you but parking lots are the most fearful place for me to be with my little children There's just something about a parking lot, right? As soon as you see a parking lot, right, it's almost as like as soon as our children take one step onto the asphalt, they lose their minds. And they're just like, run! And they just scatter, right? And it's so nerve-wracking, right? And you're doing everything you can, especially when you have four. I mean, you're just like, grab something, let's go. And you're just like, hold on, right? And I get nervous because people drive crazy in parking lots, and my children are so small, so you just begin to make stuff up, right? And this is what I do with my kids. I'm like, hey, yesterday there were 500 kids that were killed in a parking lot, <laughs> right? And, you, you, you know, they can't Google check at this point, so it's okay. And you do anything you can just to scare them to death, Right, So we, 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 we got to, it was actually the one at LA Fitness, if it matters to you which parking lot it was. And we were there, and when we got there, there was this really big black SUV, like a monstrous SUV. And uh, there was a person inside, she was on her phone, okay, that's fine, whatever. And so we, you know, I was careful as we walked in, we went in, we worked out, and we came back out. And I kid you not, that person was still right there with the car on. Right, which was very weird to me. It wasn't a ZPC or I looked just to make sure before I brought this story up. Hopefully she's not visiting today. And so, <laughs> right, now, that, now maybe it's because I only worked out for five minutes, but it's weird how long she was there. So anyway, so of course I'm going. Right? And again, she was parked literally right next to the car. And so, so we go, and, you know, I can still see the plume of smoke or exhaust, whatever kind of coming out. I'm like, all right, girls, all right, be careful. And so literally, just as we're, like, stepping, like, right behind it, all of a sudden the white light's the reverse lights come on right i'm like seriously you've been here for an hour right and so as soon as those come on what do you do you know you're like you're like come on come on come on right and you, you probably said it louder than that right and and so i am like go right and so we were like running right and we go we go you know we get to the other side and i'm like cuz i knew there was no way she could have seen our little kids uh, if she could even have seen me and so we get there uh, to the other side of the car it felt like a long distance it wasn't that long i mean it was a wide car but it wasn't that wide and so we got there and i think it was my thirdborn she she looked over at me and she said she said, Daddy, I said, what? She goes, why, why were you going like this? And I said, I hadn't even thought about that I had done that. And I said, oh, well, I'll tell you why I did this. Which is Because if I saw that SUV begin to creep back even a millimeter, I was going to smack the absolute crud out of that thing. And you know what? If there had been a whip or a chair, or a bat, I would have taken it and I would have pummeled that SUV because I am not going to let anything get in between me and these children that, man, I love so much. And I will do anything to protect them. And I will do anything to make sure that I can continue to be in relationship with them. And nothing, nothing is going to keep me from these kids that I love with a passion I cannot describe. And here's what I want you to know. And even more than that, is the way that Jesus looks at you. And when he's sitting there in that temple, he is looking at each person that is out there. He's not thinking about the doves. He's not thinking about the sheep. He's not thinking about the cattle. He is thinking about you. And he is saying, I will whip. I will overturn. I will do anything because I don't want you to think that there is anything no wool, no sheep, no dove, no system. There is nothing that is going to keep me from you because I love you so much. What I know is this almost all of us struggle to believe that truth. Some of us think if we just do enough things right, if we just get all of these things in order, if everyone seems to be impressed with us, then we're going to feel the love of everyone, including God. Others of us, I know this, they think if we just do enough, if we're just in enough great banquet teams, if we're in three different home groups, if we're in four committees, if we come at least three out of every four Sundays, if we do all of those things, then, then, then Jesus is going to love us. And we keep doing it. And you know what happens more often than not? You you keep coming up just a wee bit short. You think, oh, I just didn't go quite And what Jesus does in this scene is he begins to say, no, 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 no. no! I will take all of those things. I thought about taking this table and turning it over, and I realized I couldn't pick it up. But Jesus says... I will take any of those things, the most beautiful system you have developed to make sure that everything is just right so that then, finally, Jesus will love you. Jesus says, no, 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 that is nothing. Nothing is going to keep me from loving you. But now here's the thing. I'm convinced of it. Most of us would love the old system. The old system makes more sense. If you work hard enough so that you can buy a dove then there's about a 45% chance that Jesus is going to love you. All right. Now, this is the part we really like. If you work even harder, then you can buy a sheep, which increases your odds to about 75%. But now, listen here, type Aers. if you can work hard enough and do well enough that you have earned the badge of a cow, you're 100%. You are good. Many of us would love that system. It's clear. And we are in charge, which, of course, is the problem. And so what Jesus says is, no, 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 no. that system is is gone. Here's what you need to know. You have grace and freedom and love. But it is not based upon how many badges or how many merits you receive or how much money or any of those things. It is based on what I am going to do. When I die and am raised again for you. What I want you to know is that nothing, not something you did long ago that you feel like there's no way that God can forgive you. Not coming in here enough. Not doing enough nice things. Being a perfect parent, perfect spouse, perfect employee. Jesus loves you because he loves you. And anything that you put in the way of that, he is going to try and overturn and toss aside. Because that's who Jesus is. One of the things that I've been talking about is how do we move as a people from unconscious busyness to conscious habitation It means lots of different things. But one of them I think it means is that I think that far too often we are so busy that we don't even ask why we are doing all the things that we are doing. This morning, there, there's not really a challenge per se for the week as much as just this. When you come down this morning for communion, I want this to be a time for you to create the space of quiet and reflection. And you know, all I want you to think about is how passionately Jesus loves you. So that's why this morning we're going to do something just a wee bit differently. When you come forward, I've asked the ushers, there's two things we're going to do. One is we're not going to sing any words. There will be some instrumental instruments, but we're not going to sing any words because I I want to create space. And when you come forward, the ushers are just going to say Christ's body or the communion service, Christ's body. And I want you to say this. You can say it verbally. You can say it to your own self. I want you to say broken for me. And then whenever you have the cup, someone's going to say, Christ's blood. And I just want you to think about this. Shed for me. And if you have to say it that slowly, I want you to know it's okay. What's more important than us getting out of here in the next 10 minutes is you knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus loves you so much that he will overturn anything, so that you know that he died for you. And so with that, let us pray. God, we gather around this table this morning, and we do so in such a way that we simply create space create space that we too often do not take into the week to simply be reminded today, not of what we're supposed to do, not of what, we, uh, what else we can do, not of all the different tasks, not of any of those things, but simply to be reminded of this one thing today, that you love us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would come on this bread and this cup, that your spirit would be with us, That we might be fed by this knowledge and that it might change how we live and how we understand ourselves and others. It's in your name we pray. Amen.